Well, good morning. I want to say again how great it is to have Rusty and Brittany with us. And Rusty, you did a great job in our class. Thank you so much for being here with us today and bringing your family. Uh, I don't know if you called ahead this week to find out what the sermon was, but I could really just present it this morning by saying, yeah, what he said, because that's basically, I'm going to echo your thoughts. We've been involved in a series called Thinking Outside the Pew, and this morning we're looking at what's the point? What's the why in all of this? Why we do what we do? Let's start with a riddle. Here it is. What two partners live less than two feet apart but never meet? They're both CEOs of vast organizations with overlapping jurisdictions. They communicate instantly and work in perfect coordination. One would die without the other. One specializes in intellectual pursuits while the other pumps iron all day. Even the slightest interruption of their labors would be catastrophic, so they never sleep. They never go on vacation. They never take a day off. They're exactly the same age, inhabit the same territory, and never rest. And their combined efforts keep us alive and well. Any guesses? If you said the brain and the heart, give yourself a high five, because that is correct. Both the heart and the brain oversee complex systems that are necessary for life. And from the time that we are born, from the time that we die, they work in perfect harmony to make certain that we have uh, blood flowing, that we are able to coordinate our movements, all of those kind of things. They work in perfect concert from the time we're born to the day that we die. But it's not just physiologically that they work together. We see that the Bible presents the brain or the mind as being uh, integral in our understanding of the Bible and God's commandments. And we have many exhortations in the Bible about guarding our thoughts, about keeping sober, all of those things. And then we also see, when it comes to the heart, that that is the seat of emotions. It is the seat or the core of our affections. And so the, the mind and the heart have a lot to to do with our spiritual livelihood as well as our physical livelihood. The proverb writer stated, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. You know, folks, we read the Bible, and yet we careen through life without any joy or hope. We hear a sermon about patience, and we lose our temper before we even get home from church. We, come, we become engrossed in a study of, of eschatology and yet we never share the gospel with our neighbor. We read a book on Christian parenting, but we don't take the time to read the Bible with our kids. Knowing is one thing. Doing is something completely different. And many times, the short distance between our brain and our heart can seem like a million miles. It's the difference between knowing and experiencing. I can know that honey is sweet. I can have someone tell me that honey is sweet. I can read an article in a magazine about how sweet honey is. But until I taste honey for myself, I've never truly experienced its sweetness. You know, Psalm 34 and verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Until I taste and see that the Lord is good, I really don't know that myself. I can read about the Lord being good. 
I can read about his dealings with his people in the Bible and know that he was good, that he was gracious, that he was merciful. I can hear people talk about God being good. I can hear a sermon from the preacher as he talks about all the goodness of God. But until I, until I gaze upon his creation, until I experience the beauty and the splendor of what he has created, I don't truly know God or the goodness of God. Until I experience answered prayer, until I experience his grace and his love and his mercy, and until I experience the strengthening that comes from him, I don't truly know God. You can think of it this way. Consider that you're sitting on your couch watching the news, and in Manhattan there's this massive skyscraper that is on fire and in danger of crumbling to the ground, killing thousands of people. From the comfort of your own couch, you have no anxiety about that. You may have some concern as you watch the events unfold on television, but you have no real anxiety. But what if you were on the 13th floor of that building? And the flames are bearing down and smoke is starting to fill the room. You'd have a very different experience, wouldn't you? Or consider you're sitting at home and you're watching footage of an F5 tornado ripping through a town. As you sit on the comfort of your couch watching the footage of this F5 tornado, you have no real concern. But be standing in the path of that tornado trying to seek shelter, and that's a whole different experience, right? A train from three miles away is massive, but there's no real concern. But if you're standing on the tracks, well, that's a little bit different, right? And the same is true when it comes to knowing and experiencing God. Those are two different things. Proximity makes all the difference in simple knowledge and true experience. Again, I can know some things about God. I can hear some things about God, but until I truly experience God, until I'm so moved by the beauty and splendor of His creation, until I fall on my knees and praise because of all the wonderful things He's done for me, because, because I, I see Him working in my life, that's truly experiencing God. And until I truly experience Him for myself, I don't know Him, at least not like I should. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to suggest that knowledge is unimportant. Quite the contrary. I believe it's vital. I believe it's necessary. How can we know God if we don't know His Word? How can we know what pleases Him if we don't know His Word? I'm just saying that's not enough. And it's not the goal. For this latest edition of Thinking Outside the Pew, I want us to, to understand the goal, and the goal is not knowledge. The goal is not knowing something about God. The goal is knowing God experiencing God on a different level because I believe that that's what he wants from us more than anything else. Have you ever noticed how much of, a, of the teaching that occurs in church or in Bible class focuses on facts? I mean, that's our default setting, right? I mean, you go to a Bible class at any church and inevitably it's going to focus on the history surrounding a passage or the recitation of facts. That's what it is. It's transmitting information. That's, that's our default setting. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But at some point, we have to move to application. As you've heard me say time and time again, the goal is not disseminating information. It's giving that information so that it can translate into application for the purpose of transformation. 
But if it only stays locked up inside our head, then it's not good enough. That's not enough. We put such a high premium on knowledge in the church. And as I said, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we know the steps to salvation and we can recite them at a drop of a hat. We know Ephesians 5.19 and what it says about, you know, singing with our voices. And we can, we can pull that out of our holster as soon as the conversation turns to why we shouldn't use instruments in worship. We know the Old Testament stories like Jonah and Abraham and Moses and Gideon. And we know all of those things like we know how to change a tire or like the recipe to our favorite dish. But if it only stays locked up in our brains, it's not good enough. That knowledge has to travel from our head to our heart because unless and until it does, there is no application. You know, I saw a little track the other day on marriage. It's actually on marriage and, and, and thus divorce. And this little tract was laid out very well. The author of it did a great job of talking about God's covenant of marriage and what God intended for marriage, for it to be a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. And then it, del it delved into, you know, uh, a divorce. And it talked about Matthew chapter 19 and what Jesus was saying there. And at the end of it, I thought, that's, that's a very well-written tract. They did a good job with this. But at the end of it, I'm also left going, okay, now what? Because you talked a lot about Matthew 19. You talked a lot about the sanctity of marriage. You talked a lot about marriage and the covenant of marriage. But at the end of the day, we have people who get divorced. We have Christians in our church who have suffered through a divorce that they didn't want. Some of them were left with no other choice. Some of them are reeling because they had a spouse up and leave them for someone else. In other words, where's the application, right? I mean, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying about the Bible and about marriage and about divorce and all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, people are struggling with the issue in a very personal way. How do we apply it? Where's the application, right? Let me ask you, how far is heaven? How far is heaven? I want to suggest to you that heaven is 18 inches away. Because that is the distance from your head to your heart. And so many people are trying to get to heaven when the real goal should be to get heaven in us. And that doesn't happen until knowledge travels that distance, that 18 inches from your head to your heart. Transformation doesn't occur until that happens. Remember the hokey pokey? I would ask Eddie to demonstrate it, but I don't think he would. You know, that started with you put your right arm in, you put your right arm in, uh, out, you put your right arm in, you shake it all about, do the hokey pokey, turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. That's not what it's all about, by the way. The end of that, that game is you put your whole self in, right? You put your whole self out, put your whole self in, shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey, you turn yourself around, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about when it comes to our spiritual livelihood. It's all about putting your whole self in. Not just your brain, but your whole self. As we've talked about the last few weeks, that's what discipleship is all about. Here's what it's all about from Jesus' perspective. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I understand that knowledge is important. In fact, it is vital. But Jesus says, this is what's most important. This is most important. And do you realize that within these two great commandments is the essence of Christianity? 
the core of Christianity is love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. You accomplish those two things and you have accomplished the essence, at least, of Christianity. Now, I know there's a lot of things in between the lines there, but that is it. That's the core of who we are and what we should be, right? It's not just about rote knowledge. The Pharisees had rote knowledge. They knew the law. They knew the commands of God. They didn't have love. And that is where they failed miserably. They knew all the rules, but they were lacking in love. And when you're lacking in love, your knowledge means nothing. Absolutely nothing. Who cares that you can quote Scripture if you don't have love? Look at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He, Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You know, with the Pharisees already at odds with Jesus, he makes a pretty bold move here by going back to the synagogue, right? Why didn't he just pull this man aside and heal him discreetly? Because he wanted the Pharisees to see it. He wanted the Sanhedrin to see it. He wanted to prove a point, did he not? He wanted to prove to them how ridiculous it was that they were so tied to these rules and regulations, many of them they came up with themselves, that they weren't even willing to help someone who was in need. And so Jesus heals this man's withered hand in full view in front of them. The Sanhedrin was there. They were at the synagogue to make sure that no one was led astray. They weren't there to worship. They weren't there to give God praise. No, they were there to follow all the rules and to make sure that everyone else was following all the rules. So when Jesus does this dastardly thing, like healing somebody who had a withered hand on the Sabbath, well, that was uncalled for. You see, when it came to the Sabbath, work was forbidden. At the most, an injury could be kept from getting worse, but it could not be made better. A cut could be bandaged but not receive any ointment. A broken bone might could be tended to if it was bad enough. If a wall fell on someone, the rubble could be removed to see if the person was still alive. And if he was, you leave him there till the next day. How ridiculous it was. And Jesus was pointing this out to them. By the way, the man that he healed could have waited till the next day. But he didn't wait. He healed the man's withered hand. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? Jesus puts them between a rock and a hard place. You see, they were bound to admit that it was lawful to do good, and they were bound to admit that it was unlawful to do evil. So surely it was wrong to leave a man in a wretched state when you could possibly help him. And what do you do to someone who points out your hypocrisy and calls you to the carpet? Well, you've got to kill him, right? I mean, that's the only logical conclusion you can come to. You see, Jesus was standing in bold opposition to the Pharisees and to their mindset and mode of operation, which was substituting religion for a relationship. Consider what Jesus stated in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The word vain here means useless or empty. It can also mean hollow or unsuccessful. Jesus is using the prophet Isaiah's words here to criticize the worship of those living in his day and age. However, he wasn't criticizing the singing. He wasn't criticizing the length of their prayers. He was criticizing the fact that they came to worship God without the right heart. That they thought that they were okay in worshiping God while neglecting the needs of others, while not having love for their fellow man. Notice Mark 7 and 9. He was also saying to them, you are experts. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. You forgot what was most important. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In essence, Jesus says, all your talk about honoring God is worthless. Don't say you love him because you obviously don't. Your traditions are for your own benefit. Your religious piety is all a show, and obviously I think that Jesus was spot on with his assessment, and obviously I believe that sometimes we see this in the church today even. That our worship can become vain or useless or hollow, even though it is done precisely the way God has prescribed, yet we hold on to traditions or to customs, and we forget about people who are in need. You know, a sad part of our history is that for decades, there were people who were not allowed to worship with us because of the color of their skin. And for decades, Christians, mind you, thought that was okay. And we held to a custom or a tradition of segregation all the while gathering in our churches and sitting in our pews and worshiping God, thinking that we were okay. My friends, that was vain worship. Prescribing to a belief that is totally and completely against the will of God. Does that fulfill the commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? When you refuse to let them be in your presence? because of the color of their skin? What a sad commentary that is. Christians have been guilty of vain worship, not only in that respect, but in other respects as well. It maybe still are today, depending on the church and the people. We reject God's commandments to, to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We do so when we place certain commandments certain traditions above loving God and loving our neighbor. You know, we have certain traditions that we, that we cling to wholeheartedly, right? You ever read the book, Who Moved My Pulpit? It's a great book. I suggest that you read it. But, you know, it talks about some of these things. We hold on to, to, to traditions, things that are not biblically based, but things that we can't seem to let go of. And all the while, we cling to those while ignoring actual commandments of God, like love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, don't slander others. Don't be greedy or covetous. We'll hang on to those customs or traditions that are not in the Bible while ignoring things that are. Here's a question that we need to all ask ourselves. Every church, every Christian needs to ask ourselves. 
Does my life reflect true devotion to God? In every aspect. What do I need to clean up if it doesn't? You can follow all the rules and still not worship properly. That was Jesus' message to the religious elite. That genuine worship is an action demonstrating the heart. It's the overflow from a heart that is all in. Because that's what it's all about. You have knowledge, great. How's that working for you? Is it put into action? You know, we attend Bible classes, we read our Bible, we attend worship services, we listen to a sermon, we sing songs of praise, we partake of the Lord's Supper, and we leave. But do we ever ask the question, why? You ever think about why you do all of this? You ever think about why you're here? And if you say, well, because God said so, then you've missed the point. If you're only here because you know that God wants you to be here, then you miss the point, right? Why do we do all of this? Why do we study our Bible? Why do we try to acquire knowledge? Because I think it's important that we understand the why. We need to know the why. Well, here are some of the things that are not the why. First of all, we don't do all of this so that we can be a lawyer. Not a civil lawyer, okay? Not, not involved in, in being an expert in civil law like we, like we would talk about today. I'm talking about we don't do all of this to become a lawyer in the sense that we read about in the Gospels. These experts in the law, experts in the Jewish law. That's not what we're trying to become as we study our Bible. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, a lawyer stands up to test Jesus by asking him, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in what I can imagine as a tone of sarcasm, says, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? In other words, Jesus is saying, You're the expert, you tell me. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was it. The lawyer hit the nail on the head, answered it beautifully. But then he proceeds to try to catch Jesus, giving him a loophole of some kind. The Jews had no problem calling a fellow Jew a neighbor, but that's about where it ended. You see, this was a boundary question, who is my neighbor? I want to know, set the precedent, because I, I don't want to be loving just anybody. And Jesus, of course, defines the neighbor as anyone other than you, right? Too many Christians engage in Bible study for the purpose of discovering why everyone else is wrong and why they're right. Their goal is to justify why they can continue doing what they're doing and why everyone else needs to stop doing what they're doing. And many times, they lay heavy burdens on others while trying to find loopholes for themselves. The point is not to be a lawyer. The point is also not to make you as an historian or a philosopher or a scholar. That's not the point of Bible study or acquiring knowledge either. Some love the feeling of knowing something that other people don't. They love knowing facts and tidbits. They love playing the devil's advocate. They love speculating as to what a certain passage really means. I mean, when you dig below the surface, what does this really mean? We see that in our Bible classes a lot of times in churches and, you know, playing devil's advocate or trying to dig below the surface as if the Bible's written in code and we've never really understood the passage properly. Anytime I read a blog post about someone saying, for 2,000 years we've gotten it wrong, I think, yeah, delete. Here's the thing. 
the reason why we think that way a lot of times is because we have this Western view of Scripture rather than considering that the Bible wasn't written to you. It was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. There's an original audience. There is a cultural context. There is an original author. And we've got to figure out what he was trying to say, what the Holy Spirit is trying to say through Paul or Peter or Luke or whoever else it is. So when we come up with all these wild hairs about, well, I think it could mean this, or I think it could mean this. No, Jesus had one point in mind when he made the point. Paul had one point in mind. He was trying to convey one thing. Peter was trying to convey one thing. But the reason we do that is because we look at Scripture from a Western view, and we tend to think, oh, you know, there's some deeper meaning here because Jesus is speaking in code. No, he's not. There may be several applications to Scripture. There's only one meaning. And it's up to us to find that meaning. Not what do I want God to say, but what is God trying to say? But the whole purpose of all of it is not to become a historian or a philosopher or a scholar. You remember the guy I told you about that has spent his life interpreting Scripture and memorizing Scripture to the point that he had memorized very large sections of the Bible, but he wasn't a Christian? And he had no use for Christianity? Makes you wonder how that happens, right? But his knowledge is useless. It means nothing because it's not, it's not manifesting itself and a life lived for Christ. The why in all of this is love. You know, Paul said, and Rusty pointed it out beautifully this morning, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The point is not to be a historian or a philosopher or a scholar. The why in all of this is love. Paul told Timothy, but the goal, listen to this, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You think about that. The aim of our charge is love. It's the reason we study the Bible. It's the reason we go to Bible class. It's the reason we listen to sermons so that we can have an understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ and that we can put it into action. Your whole life is a response to the gospel, the good news. Your whole life is living out your baptism. It's living a life of love, of obedience, with a pure heart and a good conscience, a sincere faith that Paul talks about. And when you have those things, guess what? The natural result is always going to be love. That's the motivator. Scripture tells us that the whole point of the gospel is to renew my heart and my soul and my mind so that I can love. Love God and love my neighbor. That's the whole point. And oh, how often do we miss that because we're so caught up in being right on a certain verse or a certain scripture. Not to say that that's necessarily wrong, but when it trumps our goal that Paul says is love, then that's a problem, right? I told you before, one of the pivotal moments in my life as a Christian, one of the light bulb moments in my life as a child of God was when I realized that God is not some ruthless taskmaster he's not some tyrant who is watching from heaven waiting for me to mess up so that he can strike me dead or so that he can punish me in my upbringing i saw god kind of like a big eyeball in the sky watching me making sure that i always walked a straight line and if i didn't lightning would shoot out of that eye and punish me immediately But at some point, I came to the understanding that that's not God at all. Because Scripture over and over again paints God as my Father. 
and I am his son. As my father, he wants what's best for me. As his son, I follow the rules, not so much because I'm afraid he's going to strike me dead, but because I want to make my father proud. Who wants to make their father proud, right? We all want to make our parents proud. I want to make my father proud. Even though the Bible presents him as king of kings and lord of lords, he sits on his throne, but he's also a loving father. Don't you think even the kings in the Old Testament that their children probably ran up and sat on their lap while he was sitting on the throne? I mean, you're still your children. He's my father. And the rules are in place, or the commandments are set in place, not because they're random and arbitrary and he just wants to make sure we follow him because he gets pleasure out of striking us dead. No, they're there because he loves us and he knows that if we disobey, it's going to hurt us. Sin always hurts us. And so I follow the rules because I want to make my father proud. Do you want to make your father proud? Then understand the point of all of this is not just following the rules and being right in that aspect. The point is following all the rules and gaining the knowledge because you love him so much you want to please him in the way you live your life. And if you're not doing that this morning, then let us help you. We want to help you get on the right track. This is a family of God that loves people. But as I, as I spoke about this week, this is not a perfect place. And if you expect perfection here, well, you're not going to get it. But this is a place full of imperfect but redeemed people. And if you don't know about the redemption that comes through the blood of Christ, and you'd like to study about that, then let us help you with that as well. Or, maybe you have been studying and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Do not leave here this morning without being right with God. And do not leave here this morning without a love and a passion for God. Because that's what it's all about. Come now as we stand and as we sing. My soul magnifies the Lord. My 